Hello, listeners. My name is Larissa Lai, and I'm the director of the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing here at the University of Calgary. We're honored to come to you from Treaty 7 territory, the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Sutina, and the Stony Nakoda on that part of Turtle Island, sometimes known as Southern Alberta. The city of Calgary, where our offices are housed, is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Today, we're very proud to host a special podcast in honor of the late Lee Miracle, whom we lost last November and whom we are deeply mourning. Lee Miracle was an important elder, writer, and storyteller, and an important friend, mentor, and teacher to so many of us, including yours truly. The granddaughter of Slelwatooth Chief Dan George, Lee was an important member of the Red Power Movement in Vancouver in the 1970s. She was constantly engaged in the work of building community. I remember in particular her work with the Telling It Feminist Collective in the late 1980s and her leadership in the struggles against cultural appropriation in the 1990s. She is the author of many books, too many to name, but I'll name a few, Bobby Lee, Indian Rebel, I Am Woman, Raven Song, My Conversations with Canadians, Talking to the Diaspora, and recently Hope Matters, with her daughters, Columpa Bob and Tanya Carter. Tea House was honored by her presence, along with that of several other of our participants today, at a symposium called Littoral Contact Zone, Indigenous Asian Relations from the Salish Sea to Treaty 7 Territory, which took place in 2017. Deeply committed to the work of memory and oratory, as much as she was to written texts, she was an important participant and teacher in Indigenous communities and committed as well to complex and honest relationships between her own Stolo people and others, including Chinese Canadians, about whom she would always make a point to speak positively when she saw me there in the audience. I don't think I was the only one for whom she did this. She carried an ethics of land and relationship that drew her to do this with and for many, while at the same time always holding us to account and teaching us our responsibilities if we didn't seem to know them. Her book, Memory Serves, has been particularly important to help me understand the complex politics of memory and community. The title of this podcast, Remembering to Remember, comes from a moment in that book when she talks about the community building work that certain kinds of memory can do and warns us also against remembering in destructive ways. I can think of no better teaching in our current moment. To remember to remember in the wake of our dear friend and teacher's passing is to reminisce, celebrate, mourn, and also to learn and relearn from her with and through each other, as I feel I will be doing for the rest of my own life, however long I have. I'm all the more honored to be hosting this event with my former graduate student and now esteemed colleague, the wonderful Joshua Whitehead, author of Full Metal and Digiqueer, Johnny Appleseed, and Making Love with the Land, and winner of um, the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Fiction, the George Bugnett Award for Fiction, and most famously, Canada Reads. He is a true force of culture, and we're so lucky to know him and work with him. I'm also truly delighted to be hosting this event with Mahmoud Abadne, one of the senior research assistants for the Tea House Project and a PhD student here at the University of Calgary, working on a dissertation on Indigenous-Palestinian relations. 
He's a committed, smart, and industrious member of the group, and he's been doing the hard work on the ground to make this podcast happen, for which we're all very appreciative. I'll pass the floor over to Josh to say a few words of welcome, and then Mahmoud will lead us into the panel discussion. Hi, Josh. Hi, hi, Larissa. Thank you. Um, hi, my friends. I am Joshua Whitehead. I always say just call me Josh, though. There's only two people in this world who call me Joshua, my mother and my partner. So it means I'm in trouble. Um, so save the syllable. <laughs> I am OG Cree from Peguis First Nation in Treaty One Territory. Um, I'm a two-spirit member of that nation as well. I'm now an assistant professor, uh, very newly, at the University of Calgary, where I'm housed in the English and the International Indigenous Studies Department. And what a whirlwind. I, I can't believe that Littoral Zone was 2017. Uh, time is just flying by. As much as it seems like a minute is a decade <laughs> and a week is a minute in COVID, it's just time has just collapsed, as I think we all know, right? I'm very honored to be here, to be starting us off today, to be making space and holding space for us all here on Treaty 7, to which I am also a guest to on the Blackfoot Confederacy and here in Mokinstis. And I just also wanted to share maybe two little stories about Lee, two short stories. I think I speak for many of us and specifically more so for the now emerging Indigenous writers that Lee is the auntie and the cookum or the grandmother to many of us. I think we all owe some, you know, considerable gifting back, which is not to say debt, um, back to Lee um, and to her legacy that she, and the wake that she crafted, you know, as a stalwart presence here uh, as a solo writer in the nation state that is for now referred to as Canada. And Lee has been a mentor ever since I was a baby writer. I remember Full Metal and Digiqueer had just come out and I was invited to Banff with a handful of folks. Um, Greg Young was there, Lee was there, um, Cherie was there, um, Alicia Elliott was there as well among a bunch of publishing houses. And we were having discussions around the state of Indigenous literature and publishing here in Canada. And, you know, I was a, I was a little greenling. Um, <laughs> and my book had just come out. Uh, I was just starting to work on Johnny Appleseed. And we were all sitting in this large, large room. And I remember asking this question, which is much of my life's work. Um, well, what about the state of two-spirit or queer trans-Indigenous writing within Indigenous literatures, and then larger within the subset of what we call Canadian literature? And it kind of fell on deaf ears, which unfortunately I feel like I've gotten very used to, you know, as a two-spirit member of my own nation, but also here on Turtle Island, primarily when it's run by Indigenous men. It's kind of just passed off or brushed over. No one has the answers because no one knows much about it, specifically, you know, the men. And my question was like, we'll, we'll, come, we'll circle back, which is usually the polite way um, that Indigenous men like to say, maybe next time. Uh, it's not, now it's not the moment. There's more pressing matters. And I remember thinking, well, what's more pressing than, you know, rampant Indigenous youth suicides across Turtle Island, and many of whom are two-spirit or queer or trans. And so it fell on deaf ears, and the conversation continued going on. And I think I just quelled back into myself, as I have been trained to do the majority of my life up until that point. And then Lee stood up right in the middle of the conversation that, you know, these Indigenous men in publishing houses were having. And I just remember, you know, her strong presence standing up 
holding up her hand and saying, it's like, hold, like, hold the hell on. Um, we're not going to, I'm not going to allow you to kind of just gloss over this person's very important topic. And so she challenged every single person in that room by the end of the day that we need to come up with an answer for this young man, or we're not leaving the space. And she came up to me and she, you know, she, uh, she, asked me if I would do the smudging ceremony with her, which was also fairly new for me. Um, I think I was also relegated not to ceremonial duties as someone who might defy gender binaries um, within Indigenous ceremonial practices. And so I was like walking around the room smudging everyone, like fully bawling. And Lee was very made sure that that question was answered, even if it wasn't fully answered. And so that, that always kind of stuck with me, um, which I think was just Lee's legacy as a person to hold space. And if there's no space to make space for yourself, uh, as we all know of her infamous rushing onto the stage and making her own space there. So that, that's, that's always kind of stuck with me as a practice and a praxis that I, I try to now also attribute to, you know, new emerging Indigenous peoples or writers or storytellers. And then the last little thing, and it's, this is a, a life lesson that has stuck with me ever since when Lee was here in Calgary for the Calgary Distinguished Writers Program uh, with Leanne Simpson. And it was, I think it was just recently after the passing of Richard, uh, Richard Wagamese, and Lee was giving this very impassioned storytelling uh, and of Richard, of also Richard's legacy and asked us to really think about how and the ways in which some of us might have failed Richard um, of not reaching out or not making enough space or care. And I never knew Richard personally. I very like, I think grew up with the work of Richard Wagamese. But what she said was like, we can never abandon people. Um, and that has kind of always stayed in my mind as something that I really try to hold on to. Um, so as much as I think Lee you know, kind of gifted me and made space for me and helped me become a writer and a person. And we got to work together in beautiful capacities. There's very powerful life lessons she taught me, just as a person, never mind being a storyteller or a writer, that I can never forget. I will never forget. Um, we and I have always seen eye to eye, me and Lee, but we always, I think we always had a deep, you know, a profound respect and love for one another. And I remember when she passed, Buffy St. Marie's Up Where We Belong was playing. And that just kind of really stuck with me. Um, so I'm just very honored to be here and speaking about Lee and remembering Lee and celebrating Lee too. I think that's that's the way I've always been taught. So uh, yeah, very, very happy to be here with you folks. And I'm very excited to hear your stories. So thank you for letting me opening this space tonight. Thanks, Larissa. And thanks, Josh, for your amazing introductory remarks. And hello, everyone. I am Mahmoud Ababne. I am a PhD candidate in the Department of English at the University of Calgary in Treaty 7 territory. I immigrated to Treaty 7 territory in 2015. I would like also to thank you for accepting our invitation today to talk about and remember Lee. So today we have amazing speakers. I am so excited. So without further delay, uh, let's get started with introductions. We have today Dorothy Christian currently serves in the Department of Graduate and Postdoctoral Studies at the Simon Fraser University as the Associate Director of Indigenous Policies and Pedagogy. Throughout her undergrad and grad research in academia, she has consistently centralized Indigenous knowledge even before those terms were recognized in the academy. 
Outside of academia, Dorothy serves as a board member of the National Indigenous Screen Office Organization and on the advisory for the Indigenous Digital Accelerator Program at Kapilano University. We also today have Lillian Allen, who is a professor of creative writing at Ontario College of Art and Design University, two-time Juno Award winner and a trailblazer in the field of spoken word and dub poetry. Allen's debut book of poetry, Rhythm and Hard Times, became a Canadian bestseller, blazing new trails for poetic expression and opened up the form. Her other collections, Women Do This Every Day and Psychic Unrest, are studied across the educational spectrum. Also, we have Aruna Srivastava, who is an immigrant settler of South Asian and Scottish heritage who has lived in Treaty 7 lands since 1993. She's an associate professor in the Department of English and is affiliated with the International Indigenous Studies Program in the Faculty of Arts. Over her years at the University of Calgary, she has engaged in research and teaching in race, racism, decolonization, indigenous peoples in global context, the politics of reconciliation, disability and chronic illness. She has been an advisor to the Faculty of Graduate Studies on equity, diversity and inclusion, focusing especially on indigenous initiatives. We also have Daniel Heath Justice, who is a Colorado born citizen of the Cherokee Nation. He lives with his husband and the three unruly bulldog roommates in the Suya of the Shishale peoples on what is currently called the Sunshine Coast of BC. He teaches in the Institute of Critical Indigenous Studies and English at the University of British Columbia on unceded Muskeem territory. He is the author and co-editor of numerous works in literary and cultural history, including the collection Allotment Stories, Indigenous Land Relation Under Settler Siege, co-edited with White Earth Ojibwe historian Jean O'Brien. Rita Wong lives and works on unceded Coast Salish territories, also known as Vancouver, dedicated to questions of water justice, decolonization, and ecology. She is the author of Monkey Puzzle, Forage, Sibyl Unrest with Larissa Lai, Undercurrent, and Perpetual, as well as the co-editor of Downstream, Reimagining Water with Dorothy Christian. Again, thanks everyone for being here today. While I was preparing for this episode, I read some stories about Lee. I also listened to some interviews. We hope this episode allows us to further open the dialogue about her legacy and memory. As Larissa stated, one of the goals of this panel is remembering to remember. There are many stories to remember Lee. Today, I want to hear yours. So I would like to start off with Daniel because I'm starting the way I see people in my screen as if in a circle. So I would like to start with Daniel Heath Justice. What oh, thank you all. Joshua, you started me tearing up. So I really appreciate this. This is a, a great opportunity. I have to say that my grief over losing Lee is tangled up with my mom's passing. My mom died about 10 days after Lee. They were the same age. They were of a generation. My mom, you know, a white woman in the states, and Lee here. But um, it was a that was a lot, <laughs> and so there's it's just very tangled up for me. But 
like Joshua, you know, I, I think of Lee, uh, you know, Lee was complicated. She was, she was a complicated friend and auntie and, you know, somebody I didn't always agree with um, and I often agreed with um, and sometimes I disagreed with and then I would learn that she was right. <laughs> right. So Lee, and I think she would appreciate that. I, I have so many stories about Lee and her generosity, like, and, and also she was just really funny. So when I came to BC, we were colleagues at University of Toronto and, and she knew I was going to come out here. So she came up to me one day and she said, what are you doing for lunch? And I said, well, I don't have any plans. She said, well, you're going to take me to lunch and then I'm going to tell you how to manage living on the coast and how to deal with protocol. I'm like, okay, I'll take you to lunch. <laughs> and, and we had an amazing lunch and she was so helpful. And the lessons she gave me during that lunch have served me very well for being in territories that were very new to me, but had very, very deep and rich and complicated histories. So I'll always be grateful to her for that. She was a truth teller and sometimes that truth fell heavy on people's ears, but she was never cruel. I never, ever had an experience with her, even in her most formidable, where she was anything but really generous, even when she was tough. And I had, you know, we talked on the phone quite a bit. We saw each other on occasion. Uh, she was a great colleague. She was a good friend. She was challenging um, in all the very best ways. Uh, she was an auntie, right? And I didn't ever think she would die. <laughs> I mean, she was such a formidable force of nature. And so I have a lot of other stories and I'm running out of time, but my last meeting with her in person was in North Vancouver. And she was working on the Richard Wagamese book um, and she wanted to interview me for it. And we sat, we went and got uh, some pastries and some coffee and we sat in my car on the, the edge of the water it was a gloomy day, as you know, North Vancouver days often are. And we just talked about Richard's legacy. And we talked about the power of Indigenous literature and the community that we're part of and how many people we've lost. You know, so many generous people who had given so much of their time and energy and, and were unrecognized for that. You know, we talked about so many of the Indigenous women of her generation and before who were gone and who didn't get anywhere near the accolades that a lot of the boys got. But, it, I mean, it was a really deep and poignant conversation. Never entered my mind it would be our last. We talked on the phone after that, but in terms of being together. So I think about that and and the generosity. Like, she, it, she was writing that book for all of us. Um, like, she wrote all of her books for all of us. And I think for me, that's the that's the big legacy that even even when i didn't agree with her even when there were you know complicated interactions even when i didn't quite always understand what what the lesson was at the time i have certainly come to appreciate and understand it since and my life is so much better for having been touched by lee and her words and her heart and i miss her a lot and i don't really know what we're going to do without her she was somebody we really need right now so what a this is absolutely amazing story with lee and i would like to circle back at the end to some of these concepts about the power of indigenous literature and the unrecognized indigenous women and 
That's absolutely fantastic, Daniel. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Next on my screen is Aruna, then Dorothy after. Um, thanks to all of you who've, who've um, shared so far. Um, I've gotten a bit choked up as well. Most of what I have is just reminiscences. Um, I first met Lee, I can't even remember when I first met Lee. It was in the late 80s or early 90s uh, because I first met Lee at conferences. And so they were at sort of placeless, timeless times. And then when I actually got to know her a little, it was it when I first went to Vancouver to work at UBC. Um, so I, I recall that infamous Vancouver Writers Festival time as well. But at conferences, she was the most incredibly inclusive person. There were very few, if no, Indigenous uh, writers involved in those and very few writers of color. These were mostly feminist conferences and she would do this thing. The first time it happened to me, it was, um, it was actually a bit terrifying because she was very well known by, by then. She had published I Am Woman and that's why she was being in, invited to these conferences. It was a bit tokenistic. And she would look around the room and she would gather all the women of color and indigenous women. And she would say, you need to sit with me or you need to sit with us. And we shall do that to the end of the conference and we shall caucus. And it was, um, it was a bit scary, but it, it was also an amazing moment each time. It was a, an incredible moment of, not just solidarity, but mentorship, more than mentorship, to have this person look for you and say, this is what we need to do as a group of people. And this is what I'm going to do for you as well. And we did caucus, we, we would eat together and we would talk politics. And, and as, as you all know, Lee could be very funny and some of us were students, some of us had just come out of grad school, some of us weren't students. And so she was doing us a great, I was gonna say great service, but I, I don't mean it the way it sounds. It, it, was, it was a life-changing experience for all of us. We all talk about it. And I remember much later, this is just a few years ago, Lee and I and a few others were talking at a very different conference about the importance of remembering elders, those who have passed as well as those who haven't. And at that point, Lee was still with us. And I remembered that moment very, very distinctly that those have to be memorialized in some way. The stories have to be told. And that it's, there's going to come a time, I thought this too, when bell hooks died, that there are going to come times uh, when, when we're going to start forgetting. And I'm starting to forget the details. That, that worries me. I'm getting old enough that I'm going to start, I'm starting to forget the details. Lee came to Calgary a lot, it seemed. And we had in the 90s, the Women of Color Collective that uh, people like Rita and Hiromi and, and so forth have referred to 
as well in, in their tributes to Lee. And she taught us through workshops and so forth, not just about self-care in the context of being a, uh, being a racialized woman or an indigenous woman in a racist city, but also how to do that with humor and how to do that with softness and how to do that in alliance. And those years in the 90s were hard years, I would say harder than they are now or have been, even though anti-racism was much more on the agenda than it is now. And so I want to pay tribute to those years, those visits that Lee made to the city that as, as a writer and as an, as an activist and as a mentor, because we, I still thought of myself as a younger woman then. And so uh, that was very important to me. And my last anecdote is the importance to me as a teacher of what was then just a booklet, oratory coming to theory. And I assigned it in all my theory courses and it was very influential for my students who were terrified of theory. And it was my first introduction to them in a theory course of an indigenous writer as well, different ways of thinking about everything from math to the language of story. So I think I'll leave it at that, but I reread oratory again uh, in memory serves and thought it was the most influential text for me in the context of teaching. Thank you so much, Aruna. We need actually these stories, I love it. And particularly the last part, when you talk about the classroom and I'll absolutely circle back to this, to this one. And I, I feel like we, we will have an hour or so to talk about that. And I feel that's not fair for anyone, but that's, these are the limitations. I don't know how can we talk about Lee and her legacy and her theories and all of that in, in, in an hour or so, but we need to utilize this time to the best of our abilities. Thank you, Aruna. Uh, next will be Dorothy Christian, then after that will be Lillian Allen. Dorothy, please. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this circle. Uh, before I begin, I would like to acknowledge my Coast Salish cousins uh, on whose lands I live, work, and play. I am of the Shaquapmik and Skelk nations of the interior plateau regions of BC. And I'm the eldest of 10. I have one daughter and over 65 nieces, nephews, and great nieces, nephews, and great, great niece as of May 2021. And truly, I just want to say thank you so much for this invitation to be a part of this circle. And I have to tell you that I was hesitant about agreeing to be a part of this because my memories of Lee are so intimate and so personal that um, I had to really think a lot about whether or not I wanted to share those publicly. And I first met Lee in the late 1980s when I lived in Toronto and when the Indigenous women writers were taking the world by storm. And I used to open my house up to Indigenous writers 
who of course didn't have resources to pay for big fancy hotels and they would come and stay at my place and uh, sleep on my couch and on the floor and uh, we had great conversations going into the early morning hours when when they were there and it was so exciting just to be with people who were thinking from an indigenous world view because i had just started my um undergrad work at the university of toronto and meeting with these writers and and other peoples it was so affirming to hear other people thinking outside of the settler boxes you know because uh, of course the narrative in canada is very based in the colonial narrative so it was good to be with with other indigenous people so just before she passed she and i were messaging back and forth trying to set up a time to visit i had been nagging her for over 10 years to move back to bc to move home and every time that she came to the coast she and I would get together for coffee. And so while we were messaging back and forth, I was contacted by Sid, her son, and he told me that she was in ICU and that it was really um, a shock for me. And I was, um, I was really upset. I went outside and I was smoking and praying and talking to her. And I just said, you know, what the hell? You know, it's like you were supposed to stick around so that we could be old ladies together. And it reminded me of um, a time she and I were walking down Carlton Street in Toronto. We were just leaving uh, a Chiefs of Ontario. Christmas party and we were arm in arm heading towards the subway and we had put our running shoes on and She was laughing. Of course. We were always laughing when we were together and She said to me look at us. We're going to be great old ladies together so I was um, when I was walking down the street and smoking and praying I was really talking to her about that memory and uh, about how she left so that we couldn't do that together. And I also talked to her about leaving on Warrior Day on November 11th. I mean, it, it really struck me because she was such a warrior in so many ways and not warrior in the sense of um, that people think of warriors, but she was a warrior on, you know, that carried peace in her heart. And I always loved having conversations with her. There were, as I said, there's so many memories that are so personal. When I moved back to BC in, in the early 90s, I was in a really, really terrible place with myself 
and um, I had been in a deep depression for a number of months and Lee came out to see me when I lived in Penticton and I had been told by someone else that I had wrapped myself with the blanket of death. And I know that Lee came to see me because she was concerned. And she took me to the Stein Valley and she taught me how to wail, Coast Salish style. She taught me how to release that kind of pain out into the universe. So I gave it back to Stein Valley. And I was so grateful to her for teaching me that. And uh, I have so many other memories that are, are um, so intimate, but I'll finish there. I'm just very grateful that she was a part of my life. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dorothy. Thank you for these stories. We need to hear them. And Lee, as a warrior, I myself look up to that and we, I love to think of Lee as a warrior. Thank you again, Dorothy, for these stories. I would move next to Lillian Allen, then Rita. Well, this has been um, really uh, connective and um, presence in Lee in spirit and soul right here. So I'm coming to you um, from the ancestral and traditional territories of the Mississaugas of uh, the Credit First Nation, the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe and the Huron-Wendat, uh, yeah, traditional territories. Well, what can you say about Lee? <laughs> so I'm just gonna start by saying Lee and I, hung out what I would call outside of time. And those were just moments when you hung out and um, connected on a real human level. Lee was in the environment when I was coming up, we're about the same age. And we knew about each other. And occasionally, we would be on the same bill. We always found each other. I admired her and her work and her performances. And she always made a point to um, reach out to me or to come and say something to me. And I did that also. And it was very comforting and supportive at the time because, you know, you were in this great field of white. There were a good, good base of feminist supporters, but otherwise it was like, you know, you, it was a hazard uh, journey. One of the things I loved about Lee is that she talked about the Black Power Movement. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we had great talks about that and the Red Power Movement. And the, the thing when we talked about that is, is that there's always laughter. at the, There's a seriousness, but there was a, a feeling that there's an absurdity to it. There was, there was an absurdity and there was a power to it. So it was almost, how could this be? And look at we here, and we are kicking, you know? So there was part of that to it. So you were always in the fullness of your life when you were dealing with Lee, at least me, right? So politically, we, we bonded tight, you know? 
she was interested in decolonization and decolonizing and, and anti-racism issues as it relates you know, to people, to humankind. So, you know, to indigenous peoples and the black people. So she was very concerned about um, what I was facing. And we, we, as I said, we were aware of each other. So we were voices across the room in the same conference across the country. We understood our echoes and we kind of tuned ourselves when we, um, when we know that each other had an issue. Um, we knew we, we had each other's psychic backs. And, you know, Lee's one of those people who's bigger than life. So when you meet her up, you want to make sure she's real. And um, because so many people you meet up, they have this thing and then, oh, my God. But Lee was just something more than you can imagine. I've never encountered anybody more grounded I mean, if you lift her off the ground, you would see a long string going to the center of the earth. And that laugh, there is that percussiveness to that laugh. Try and remember that laugh. There's, it's almost like she has a chamber four times the size of her chest inside of her. And then with each burst of laughter, the note trickles off into this percussive quality that takes you to some other place. You know it's coming from somewhere, right? We, we lived on the same street a few doors apart for a while. She, she stayed with her, her, her nephew, I think, and we talked occasionally hung out I walked down there she was passing and we talked about her quilting and who was having a baby in her family she talked about her life changing um, she even laughed at me having this kind of full household and how she used to have you know three of everything all the right dishes and so forth and so on <laughs> so yeah it's a matter of time before I transformed from that myself but yeah she she noted that so that was really good you know what Lee called herself a dub poet for god's sake a dub poet in the time when people didn't want to hear about orality or dub poets and this heavy racism I know she knew June Jordan. She was totally versed in her, who also called herself a dumb poet. But how amazing is that? That is like saying, you're my family and I'm going to stand up beside you, right? And that was just, that was just so, I, I can't tell you how that, that, that was like our Pulitzer Prize, so to speak. So I think of Lee, how she is, unapologetically who she is and how her work confronts the things that unjustly define us, constantly negotiating a journey between the hard and harsh realities and renewal. Always reaching into the past, into the future, but consolidated in the present. You know, it's not just what she does or what you do, but who you are. And, and, and what she is, this is what created this inspiring unshakableness for me. In her presence, there's this quiet, subversive, complex, complicated, warm, fierce, and yummy. I'm going to say that word. I've hugged Lee many times, and it's yummy. I like these three lines from I Am a Woman. And the rain of her green meadows mingled with tears of pain, pain healed by earth's soft damp. 
So Lee shows us that poetry, like the earth's soft damp, like nature, is important to comfort the suffering. It's it just woven into our work. Poetry like the earth can be what she says, the wounded healer. The mingling of the earth and the damp, the meadows and the tears, the green and the soft is a calling us back to ourselves and to the earth and to each other. In our words, in our prose, in our poetry, we see, touch, hear, smell, other dimensions we don't even know, but our DNA like gets activated and we remember. And as Larissa reminds us, that Lee reminds us that she wants us, she calls on us to remember. So I, I must say, I can't get over the fact, I still can't get over it, that Lee called herself a dub poet. I mean, what a sisterhood, what a brotherhood. It's just so amazing to me. This person, I don't know how to describe her, uh, is just such a significant part of who we are in Canada. Such an important part of how we take our stand. We need these signposts. We need these reinforcement. We need this validation. And Lee just gave it fearlessly and freely. And she says, look, I'm just planting this pole right here out of all that foolishness. Come, come, her arms, her, her words, her hugs, her wisdom, sometimes her fierceness, that, that mush and that, that familial and family, um, yummy. That's what I'm going to say about the miracle, yummy. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, thank you for highlighting also the political connections or like what you call politically bonded between black movements and indigenous movements. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you for that, uh, Lillian. I would like to give the floor now to Rita. Thank you, everyone. Um, I'm really moved by everything I've heard and uh, so grateful to be part of this circle too. Uh, Aruna mentioned that um, we had met Lee back in the early 90s in Calgary with the Women of Color Collective. And meeting Lee was really transformative for me. Like I, I knew I was searching, I was looking, and Lee helped to put me on the path that I'm still on today. So I'm just so grateful for all that she shared. For the last two decades or so, I've been living on these traditional territories near what is still called Snoke also sort of known as False Creek. And Lee wrote a story that I've taught many times called Goodbye Snoke about the history of what was there and what I hope will be there again somehow, someday. But I'm currently calling in from uh, Wet'suwet'en territory from the Unistoten Healing Center and just want to acknowledge my very generous hosts here. And that Lee has been such an influence on us in so many ways. In Goodbye Snoke, there's a line, a few lines in that story that I want to mention. One is uh, that we're built for transformation. And she also writes in there to find freedom in the context you inherit. And 
you know, hearing you speak of her kinship, really, and just really reminds me of how to have survived such violence, such colonial divisiveness, such institutional um, hate, and to still, at the end of the day, be yourself, to still live with love, with laughter, with generosity of spirit. That's what Lee, I think, has taught so many of us. And um, it's a huge legacy that she leaves with us and that I think we have a responsibility to carry on in whatever ways we can. So one of the other memories I have of her was uh, it was an event in the Queen Elizabeth Theater and she was basically telling us, all of us in the theater, that if we're living on Coast Salish land, we have responsibilities as Coast Salish citizens to the land, to the people, and to learn the Coast Salish laws, even if we weren't taught them, that we still have that responsibility. And that's that's a teaching that has stayed with me and that I'll spend my whole life following and, and trying to live up to. The other thing, I think, in the early days when I met her was we were very young and passionate about anti-racism, but she really had a very rigorous but also very generous way of situating our concerns within the structure of colonization and with the need to decolonize and to stay connected to our own ancestors as well as to recognize the ancestors of the lands where we happen to be living. And that long-term, that really big, generous view, like many, many generations of knowledge that you stand on the shoulders of, but that you also uh, want to carry forward and pass on to future generations. That's what Lee has also also taught me, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm really grateful that Lee introduced me to Dorothy and to a whole bunch of other amazing writers when she organized an event in Bellingham. And out of that came a lot of work that continue to do today um, around water. And one of Lee's essays, you know, she also reminds us that water, we don't own water. It's not an object that we have power over, but that water is life itself. And I think we're in a dangerous moment where too many people have forgotten that. And so Lee reminding us to respect the water and to pay attention to what it's doing, to learn from it, is something that I also carry and that also guides um, my life and hopefully other people's lives as well. I wanted to also mention the last time I saw Lee, which was in the unceded territories, also known as Vancouver, in Massey Books, and she had just was launching um, her book, Hope Matters, which she co-wrote with her daughters, Columpa and Tanya. And just that act of writing a book together and then celebrating it together, I, you know, I had no idea that that would be the last time I would see her in person. And it still seems a little hard to accept, actually. But I think that the legacy that her daughters carry is something that I'll keep an eye out and try to support. And also... Yeah, that that sense of respecting Coast Salish laws, Coast Salish land, Coast Salish people, and the way we're connected in so many ways through the water, through our spirits, through our ancestors. I'm just so grateful that, you know, that our paths crossed exactly when we needed them and, or I needed them, I should say. And 
what we're seeing today, I think, with land back and with um, so many front lines of people trying to defend their lands and their waters from colonial destruction, that's all something that I think I learned from Lee. And it was that love for the land, for the people, that connection, and just her frankness, uh, the way she had of cutting through crap and and calling things out as she saw them really clearly is a gift that I'm also grateful that I got to witness and experience. There was a ceremony up at Zelotooth for Lee when she passed to um, send her to her ancestors in a good way. And I went to just um, pay my respects and be grateful for her. And it was a surprise to suddenly find myself in a canoe with um, all these other people um, who loved Lee as well, paddling. And I I felt that that was a lesson that she was still teaching me, (laughs) even in her passing, that uh, there's work to do and you can get up and do it and it's going to be okay. You're going to do it together, that we have each other and that sense of power with one another and that sense of love and respect for spirit. I think I'm so grateful that we shared that with um, us and with so many. So thank you. Thank you, Rita. Thank you so much. And I, I love when you mentioned, particularly at the very early, uh, at the beginning, when you talked about uh, colonial violence and particularly the concept of forgetting. And I, I, I'll just have a couple of notes from here, from Lee's work, uh, Memory Serves, in the preface. She was particularly talking about this challenge between when you transform like a speech or oratory into written work. And she was talking about, about it as new form of prose. And later she explained that this is for my community because she said few indigenous authors did that, this concept of transmission and transformation of oral stories or oratories into written work. She called it uh, oratory turn essay. And she explained how her community, and even since you said Canadians need that. And here where I want to talk about it. I want to talk a little about this transmission and transformation of indigenous knowledge into contemporary context and how indigenous oratory is serving communities. Because I believe she said Canadians need that. And I think personally, I don't think Canada understands the mark that she made on this land. Then now for us as a teacher to build up on the first premise, as a teacher, how do we turn the classroom, for example, which is part of our communities, right? And most of our students, I'm talking about myself here, are settlers, Canadians. So how we can turn the classroom into a space to remember, to fight or resist forgetting or what Glenn Coulthard called the selective amnesia of the settler states. So I would like to open that discussion about any of these ideas or topics that any of you would like to address. So anybody can jump in. Well, I'm actually happy to to start just with another story real quick, because I think that for me captured something. So I was teaching an Indigenous Lit class at... um, University of Toronto. And I didn't know Lee very well. I knew her work. I loved her work. um, But I'd only met her a few times. And one thing I had students do was they had to 
do group work and they had to do group work on a particular work and we were reading one of Lee's books. Um, and so the students who were working with her book, which was Will's Garden, um, unbeknownst to me, they reached out to her and invited her to come to class for their presentation. I didn't know Lee very well. I was very scared about this. I was like, oh no, because I don't know what this presentation is going to be like. Um, and Lee came and she sat in the very front row of the class, which I was also like, oh, what's going to happen? Um, you know, because these were, these were good students, but they were very, very quiet. And as they started, Lee had this way of being an audience member. She was a very participatory audience member. And she would respond as people were talking. And she was, and at first the students were not sure what to do with that, but then it became really clear that she was building them up. Uh, like she was responding every time they said something thoughtful and smart, she would kind of lift them up. And you could later, I realized a lot of what she was doing, she was training them to be orators. She was, she was kind of giving them, and, and I'm watching this, you know, and I'm thinking kind of my, my teacherly training. And then there was this one part where a student who was super, super shy, super quiet, and they'd all, like, you could kind of see they were getting stronger and more, um, more confident. And the student made an observation. I don't remember what it was. And Lee jumped to her feet and she yelled, yes, yes, all these smart professors think they know the book you're the first person to ever get that and i it was just the most amazing display of of pedagogy and like this student was just they could have floated out of that room they were the smartest people who ever lived by the time they were done talking about lee's book um and i heard her speak afterwards every time she was part of a of these spaces, she was helping people do oratory. And it was, you know, some of it was, was cultural, but also some of it was just helping people not only find their voices and, and kind of hold those spaces with their voice, but also to be accountable in their voices. And so I, every time I saw that, you know, and she helped me and she helped so many others, but I think that for me was a moment, it was a small moment and it made me appreciate so many qualities of Lee, just in that, that, like the generosity and love and enthusiasm. And also like, she was not down with the bad way that a lot of people read her work. And she was gonna help teach these young literary critics to do it better. So I hope that's, that's relevant to the, to the question, but I think in terms of oratory, she lived it. That, and, and everything she did was to help bring that to a bigger audience, but to help everybody be more accountable in the words that they shared and the words that they lived by. Absolutely. Thank you, Daniel. And I can just imagine myself going to a classroom and see Lee sitting in the, I would just go sit beside her and tell her, can you please go? teach <laughs> i did not feel up to teaching class that night i will tell you that when lee's in your class in the front row you're like what do i have to say really anybody would like to respond to each other's words or if you'd like to jump on on the classroom and community i just have a memory i don't really it's not it doesn't exactly address the question but so she she was here in 2020 just before covid with our you know distinguished writers program but in 
2013, Robert Majel and others organized an Indigenous Writers Gathering that did not have the support of the Faculty of Arts or the department. And so in organizing it, we, we had to get resources from outside of the usual uh, sources. And it was the first that we knew of gathering of, like large gathering of an Indigenous writers. It was called Ipoi. And it's kind of, I'm, we have all the recordings of the readings and everything. They're still online. But it, it's, it's one of those gatherings that's been a bit relegated to history, I think, at least institutional history. And I remember the Lee and uh, all, all sorts of other uh, writers, it, it tended to feature uh, women writers at that Calgary gathering. And some of the ways in which she challenged her colleagues, but also was extraordinarily generous, both to the people on the panels, and there were readings and, and all sorts of things, people on the panels, and as well as to those of us who were involved in organizing, because there were certain things we didn't get right organizing it, and there were certain things that we did in context of, in the context of hospitality and relationship especially, and almost all of us organizing the the gathering were, were non-Indigenous. And this was long before the university had even thought about Indigenous strategies, ways of doing things, connecting, that sort of thing. And a lot of credit goes to, to Robert for that and to um, Sable Sweetgrass, for those of you who, who know her. But it seems to, I'm just thinking, it, it seems to have, disappeared a bit into history, that, that gathering. And it was only not even 10 years ago that a, a significant number of Indigenous writers gathered here and that, and that Lee was quite significant in that, in that gathering as well, both as an encourager as well as someone who, and what I learned from it was the ways that she challenged her, her Indigenous colleagues and friends in a very different way than she did with non-Indigenous colleagues and friends. It was, it was instructive to, to watch. Thanks, Aruna. Anyone else would like to talk about how to remember Lee in a classroom? Lillian, you want to say something? Oh, I wasn't thinking about the classroom, although I've invited her to my classroom. But um, the reason I'm not getting into any of the heavy stuff is because one of the things I, I learned from Lee and somebody like me who's on the front line all the time is, and Aruna brought it up, you, you need to take care of yourself and be fully human or whatever that means. So I was remembering the time a group of us, I can't remember what it was, did a walking tour in their philosopher's walk at U of T. And it was to listen because that's one of the things that he talks about, listening. And I, I don't know how I ended up on it, but when I got there, we're listening for the rivers that run beneath. Nobody's heard it. And Miss Lee took us on that little tour. We got down 
we still got down close to the ground, you could hear the rivers. This is like in the middle of Toronto on the U of T. And we went to different spots. And um, so that's the kind of things I hold with me. That's, that's the stuff that's important to me. I mean, the other stuff is important too, and important to those of us on the front line who are, who are struggling and this is expected of us and we have to come down as heavy, et cetera, is that there is that, that connection to, to, to be part of that or to listen, to be there, to know that there, there are other things that this little classroom and university they fit us into, it, it's not our making, we're just surviving it. It's another <laughs> thing to serve, another detention center, so to speak, to survive, right? Um, so I, I did want to get back to just that of, you know, I call it outside of time because our time is to do this organized and the system and so on. No, it was just like outside of time. We're just hanging like on a different planet. It just being. And that filled me up for weeks to come. And I've taken people back to those spots and I've gone to that spot myself with my little blanket and one of those spots and, so that's the kind of thing that stays in my heart. I wanted to share that. Thank you. Thank you, Lillian. Absolutely. Dorothy? I just like to say that for me, Lee was what I call a big brain. And so many people didn't, it's like if you understand Indigenous oratory, and the training that goes into that and how there are strings of the story that get spun out and then they get pulled together in the end. And I think that many people don't understand that, you know, so she was challenging to a lot of people because they didn't understand that. You know, but I've always held her up as one of the intelligentsia, most definitely of Indian country in Turtle Island and in fact across the globe, because she talked about issues outside of the settler boxes. And she and I used to meet for coffee whenever she came to Vancouver. And I so appreciated being able to talk to someone that was coming from an Indigenous perspective that I didn't have to filter everything through colonialism because I, at one point I was talking to her about, I am so sick and tired of colonialism and having to talk about it all the time. You know, and this was when I was starting my grad work, my ME and my um, at SFU. And she said to me, I get where you're coming from, but we can never forget. Right. And and uh, so it's like that really influenced me in terms of my own thinking, because I was being very dismissive, I guess, of the settler society but of course I can't do that and I don't think any of us can in terms of our relationship to settler peoples in this country you know so it's like constantly having to remember things that 
she taught us. And I mean, like I said before, my memories of her are really personal and intimate, you know, because during Oka, I remember her coming to me and asking me, if something happens to me, promise me you'll look after my kids because we were very well aware that there was a possibility that we could die there, you know? And um, I mean, those are the kinds of, of things that we did because we were in, in the middle of, of doing what we do when we're standing up for the land and uh, standing up with uh, other indigenous peoples, you know? So I would like to, I would like for her to be recognized as being a big brained person and uh, that she is definitely uh, part of the intelligentsia of the global indigenous world. Thank you. Thank you, Dorothy. Absolutely fantastic. And I do believe that, and I do believe the settler state is not recognizing her. And we do believe that we are recognizing her for her work. And we would like to share this with our immediate communities, right? Uh, Rita, I'm wondering if you have uh, a remark or a point in here? Yeah, it just uh, was struck when Lillian was speaking about listening to the creeks and Dorothy about the land. Like the um, One of the things Lee did when she was there for the downstream gathering was she walked us around Sunelk, um, the area that her you know, relatives and family and ancestors had lived for so, so long and helped us to see what was there before colonization. And I think for me, what Lee reminds me or teaches me is to learn from the non-human, from all our relatives, um, the plants, the animals, what Dorothy might call an indigenous way of seeing and thinking. And the land teaches us so much even when it's been through so much violence and being shaped and misshaped and imposed upon and you know the where i am right now they're trying to put uh, a pipeline under a river and the water here is so clean you can still drink it and those are the kinds of places that we need to protect and when i walk around false creek or so-called false creek in vancouver um, I remember, or I try to remember, um, all that was there before. So the fish weir that was there at Granville Island, the uh, um, shellfish, the sea asparagus, the camas, like all the plants. And to think about, you know, the water that remains uh, alive and that the water has spirit too and the land. So for me, it's not necessarily about the classroom, but it's about the learning that she offered us and that starts for many of us in the classroom but goes way beyond the classroom into everywhere we walk and breathe and you know conduct our lives and the memories that she shares I think that bringing together of so much history gives me the sense of a future that I would want to fight for a future that I wouldn't want to live in and I'm also grateful to leave for that I have to go. I just want to thank all of you for including me in this conversation. And I'm so grateful and so honored to hear all of you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Rita. Thank you so much. I would like 
also to follow up with uh, Dorothy's uh, point, of course, like some indigenous scholars call the land or classroom, of course. That's, yeah, I love that. And uh, I would just like to invite you for, uh, if uh, anyone wants to offer last words or closing comments. I would. I haven't formulated it very carefully. So I'm first of all, I want to appreciate the work that you three have done in getting this together. And I think this, this podcast is really important. I've been concerned. Um, it might be quite a selfish concern in terms of thinking about the people that we are that we miss and then whether they're artists or whether they're activists or both, you know, the people that we miss and then kind of let go, if you see what I mean, because they're they've either passed away or or they, you know, they they may have a illness or something that that makes them uh, takes them out of our spheres. And so I'm I'm really it's almost become an obsession for me, but it's not a productive obsession. And so I would like to see us work with this with Tea House and think of ways in which some of the concerns that we've raised about a kind of silencing or an invisibility uh, around Lee's work and life that I think is just going to increase because uh, at least in most indigenous studies and English departments and so forth, I don't think there's an, uh, an impulse to, to sort of energetically support her work being taught there. And I really don't know what I'm saying, except that I think there is something that, that we who miss Lee and recognize all of the ways in which she was important historically, um, as an activist, as a, as a mentor, as, a, as an auntie, as a writer, um, as an intellectual. So I would like to think, us, think of some way that we can do something about that. And I can think of concrete things, but they don't seem appropriate for this conversation because they're very much based in the academy and it wouldn't have to be academic stuff. Thanks, Aruna. Anyone else? Lillian and Dorothy, would you like to? I just wanted to add to Aruna to add the, the age and artist category and not them just aging out like we are want to be, but the fact that um, we need to pay more attention and we you know we did that conference a couple years ago at certain architects house we need to pay more attention because we have somebody like lee who's working significantly with just such a reach and influence and without the the resources or the um you know a proper kind of way in these institutions that we're a part of, that we retreat to, and I, I consider myself one of those who retreated. To. I think that is something we need to think about. And I just also want to say, I love that Lee also, you know, always reaching into the future, but so much a part of the present, that she, she this collaboration, you know, this, this work she does with not just young people, but with her daughter. I mean, who does that? 
<laughs> you know, it's like that's such a, an amazing example for um, for our communities, especially diverse communities, that that we have a different stream of university and different knowledges and so forth. And Lee showed us concretely. This is our university. We are. This is this is what we are doing. We, you know, and I, I, I really love that, and and just the quality that comes from that. So I'll pass it on to Dorothy. Thanks, Leland. Dorothy. Well, when I wrote this comment, some indigenous scholars call the land our classroom slash university, because for so many years our knowledge, indigenous knowledge, was extracted from our communities and there was not appropriate recognition given to the knowledge holders. So when I, I wrote about it actually in my own dissertation about how the land is our university, and that our knowledge keepers are the old people who know the medicines, who know the land, who know the stories from those lands. I know that in many ways it's difficult to think about it in terms of how we share the lands together. And with all of our situation in terms of the climate and our responsibilities to the earth together. And I'd like to just emphasize Lee's teachings around that, and I do this as well, is include people, settler peoples, doesn't matter who you are, that live on these lands, that you have a responsibility to those lands. Years ago, I wrote an article and I challenged all the immigrant groups in this country asking you, when are you going to start giving back? Giving back to the people and to the land that you have been using, in some cases, for generations. Because I really, truly believe that if we all were responsible for each piece where we are living, like for me here on the coast, right? Living with my Coast Salish cousins, taking some responsibility and participating in ways that I can support them. You know, that if everyone did that all over the earth, I know that this is a, a great utopian dream, but, um, you know, I think that we are in such a situation, a crisis around the globe that we need to start thinking about how we can all work together to have the land be our university for all of us to start listening to it. It's like Lillian said, going and listening to the rivers that are under the city of Toronto, like paying attention to all of those things, to the watersheds to the waters that provide you with with your showers and you know i mean it, simple things like that but to think about the land as our classroom and our university thank you thank you so much dorothy daniel i'm wondering if you have uh, the last word will be for you 
I think what I'm taking away from this is something that came up a lot in the aftermath of Lee's passing, which was, you know, we've talked a lot about her public work, but everybody I know who had anything, any connection with Lee will speak about her just reaching out just randomly and checking in and the behind the scenes work. I don't know when she slept because almost everybody I know has stories of her checking in on them, looking after them, you know, having them at her house, feeding them. You know, she was an intervention goddess. Like she, she helped people in addictions. She helped people who were in abusive domestic situations. She helped people who were in deep despair. She helped people who were transitioning in and out of these, this world and also into new, new visions of themselves. And so much of the work she did is not stuff that is on the page, even though that's important, but like she took community so, so seriously. And that's one thing I'm really going to take away from this conversation as you know, and also her activism, she was such a strong activist on so many levels, but she, she took her responsibilities seriously in all of the ways those responsibilities were manifested. And I think we take for granted that folks like that will always be here because they are so omnipresent. And then when they're not here, like we have to take up that mantle. And that's a lot to, that's a lot to live up to, but I think she gave a really good model for what that could be. And I'll really, I will always treasure my friendship with her and I'll really treasure these kinds of conversations. So I really, I want to thank you for that. Um, it, it's been a real, it's been heartening. I'm not, I'm not teary now. I actually am more, I'm filled. So thank you. Thank you everyone. I really appreciate that. This is absolutely fantastic. It's just lots of knowledge here and I'm learning and this is the way we go forward. And I would love to listen to you for days, but I know we, at certain point, we need to, to end that, but absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Lilan. Thank you, Daniel. Dorothy, powerful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rita. And thank you, Aruna. We'd really appreciate to continue this conversation, the ongoing for me as a settler of learning and the, our listeners too. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come and be part of this. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you everybody so, so much. What an amazing conversation. I'm just, yes, as Daniel says, full and blown away and held to account and feeling the connection head and heart this, this morning really, um, just yeah. so appreciative of you all. Thank you so, so much. We hope you enjoyed this special Tea House podcast, Remembering to Remember, in honor of Lee Miracle. You are listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, 
as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Paul Minier, Ryan Stern, Mark Lynch, Shu Yin Yu, and Shazia Ramji. We extend our gratitude and appreciation to longtime Tea House supporter and today's co-host for this special episode, Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.